Hey everyone, this is Graham from Guru Focus. If you haven't met me already, I run our value investing live series on YouTube. The podcast you're about to listen to was originally recorded live in front of an audience, so our guests may make references to charts and PowerPoint slides that you won't be able to see here. If you want to check out their full presentation, including those slides, or join our next live stream, click on the link down in the description. Now back to the podcast. All right. Welcome, everyone, to Value Investing Live. I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Brian Yachman, President and Chief Investment Officer of YCG LLC. He founded the firm in 2007 in Austin, Texas. YCG is an active management firm that has seen assets grow from $1 million to nearly $1 billion as of September of this year. They've achieved market-beating performance since their inception. YCG offers separate account management and is the advisor to the YCG Enhanced Fund. As always, please feel free to post your questions in the chat section throughout the presentation, but do please keep in mind that we are going to hold those until we get to the Q&A section at the end. And without anything further from me, I'll go ahead and toss things over to Brian and we can go ahead and jump into his presentation. Thank you, Graham. I appreciate it. I um, feel honored to be here and hope that something I can share today will be of use uh, to all of your viewers. Um, this is the disclosure page, so of course, if you guys want to read it, you can pause this at a later time and read it in detail. So uh, as uh, Graham mentioned, we opened our doors in November of 07. I was right at the peak of the market and uh, we manage the turbulent waters well for our clients. And so today we've now grown to over a billion. Uh, we're hundred percent employee owned uh, by myself, Will Kruger and Elliot Savage. And you can see our bios and the rest of the team on the website. Um, we each have significant amounts invested right alongside our clients. And this is pretty important. You know, many studies have shown the correlation between the size of a manager's investment and subsequent performance. And surprisingly, 50% of mutual fund managers have no money in their funds and 90% have less than a million, according to a prior study uh, years ago. So we have all of our liquid assets invested in this strategy, uh, whether it's through separate accounts or mutual fund, but um, we're, we're all in. And so in our opinion, the key to successful investing is to compound capital at highest sustainable rates of returns for a very long time. And if you don't have to sell and you can keep owning the business, then you also get to compound on top of Uncle Sam's money. Um, and we, as you can see at the bottom, we're fairly concentrated. We tend to have about 30 holdings or so. We view it as just having a, a, a collection of, of global champions. So. <clears throat> We have market beating returns since our inception, uh, but what also matters is how we got there. And we're very pleased that we've been able to achieve these results with favorable risk statistics. Uh, as you can see, no matter how you dice it, we've, we've done well in these various metrics. And of course, the question should always be asked is, well, if you've beaten the market, is it repeatable? And when excess returns are achieved, they're usually categorized into one of three advantages. Investors may claim informational or analytical advantages, and while we'd hope to have some ourselves, those can be competed away. Be, uh, behavioral advantages though are probably the most enduring simply because human nature doesn't constantly uh, change around. So going through these behavioral biases, first off, we wanna point out that the average investor tends to be overconfident in their ability to get rich quick. Um, and so as a result, they tend to overvalue risky stocks and they undervalue the businesses that are, have high and sustainable returns. 
So it's almost like you get paid a premium to be willing to own a boring business. And multiple empirical studies corroborate this assertion, which would make you think that then it would eventually get arbitraged away with this knowledge being out there. But yet it's not because of that remarkable persistence of human nature. Now, to see this same concept in a picture format, here the black line represents expected returns. So if you invest in high quality, you should in theory anticipate to get lower returns here in the lower right corner. However, in practice, empirical studies show that you actually tend to end up in the upper right. And so we like to fish in this area to stack the odds in our favor. However, most investors, because of that human nature, are hanging out on the far left trying to get rich quickly up here, but then they end off often in the lower left corner. So we, we re, uh, refer to this as the high quality mispricing and we attempt to exploit that. So what leads to high and sustainable returns? Now stepping back, um, a superior investment, as I mentioned before, it comes from compounding capital at high rates of return over long periods of time. In other words, we want to own the most efficient use of capital businesses in the world that can sustainably earn those high returns uh, with the least amount of capital needs for long periods of time. But the question is, are they easy to come by? And so first, just a little history here. When you think about civilization, innovation continues to increase and through the centuries, it's created abundant wealth creation. And to see this here, we see rising per capita income occurring in countries all across the world. Encouragingly, encouragingly, these income gains are occurring most rapidly in many of the poorest regions of the world. And here we see that this income growth, it's not only lifting the world out of poverty and, and creating, uh, sorry, it's not only creating ultra wealthy, but it's lifting many out of poverty. And so we see that the rising per capita incomes are leading to a large and rapidly growing middle class globally. And at the end there, it's projected to accelerate. So this is all great, but as businesses compete against each other to serve the world with all the competition comes deflationary pricing. Now this is most readily seen when you're looking at technology. We're all familiar with rapidly declining prices in this sector, but here this, the exponential nature of these declines is absolutely jaw dropping. So when you look at this chart here, it shows 30 to 40 years ago, if you take everything that your cell phones or smartphone is capable of, uh, just look at its initial cost back then, grow it with inflation, and today your phone would cost almost a million dollars. But as we know, these functionalities and more are even available on just $500 to $1,000 on a smartphone today. And believe me, <laughs> you would not have been able to fit this long list of applications in your pocket back then. And that was only in the year 2011. Then you have inflation adjusted today, and certainly the phone would cost over a million dollars today. But what's interesting is it's not just technology. This uh, deflation is occurring in many other large and important sectors as well. So here you can see foods becoming a smaller percentage of our budgets over time. Here you can see after adjusting for inflation, the price of commodities is declining, which makes sense. Uh, there's increased supply from more innovative ways to extract them, uh, decreased demand from better recipes, so we need less of them, or just alternatives that make it so that we avoid using them altogether. But this upward pressure on supply and downward pressure on demand leads to a downward trend in pricing over time. So then here, 
the same is true of energy, and this is the resource that literally powers all other sectors. Uh, and even energy is declining in price over time. You see it going from a little over 15% of GDP to just over five. So what do we observe? First off, that global wealth is increasing. Um, second off, that volume growth opportunities are abundant in a world of ever-increasing wealth. But growth alone does not translate to superior returns for the investor. The real hurdle is competition and innovation that's constantly driving down pricing to the cost of capital in nearly every industry and every business, wreaking havoc on the investor returns. So it's extremely rare to find enduring pricing power. And by that, what I mean is a business that can maintain charging premium pricing and still maintain volume growth. So where is this enduring pricing power? Well, oftentimes we find dominant network effects tend to overcome that deflationary pricing that comes from all this competition and innovation. Not only does it give you current pricing power, but it also gives you the ability to grow pricing because the value grows exponentially as the network grows. But to see this uh, graphically, notice with each additional user here added to a network, the value does not grow linear, but exponentially. Uh, many have tried to capture this formulaically, and, and regardless of whose law you're following, the point is each new user creates multiple new nodes. And so the value of the network grows exponentially with each uh, added user. So compare this. This is in stark contrast uh, to the old world economies of scale, if you will, which is predominant in manufacturing economy. Uh, here the name of the game isn't pricing power. You could be a price taker. But as long as your cost structure is lower than your competitors, you could earn superior returns on capital. So the goal was to become the lowest cost producer. And that, of course, is what's making everything more affordable over time. Uh, but essentially, I'm pointing out there's two main ways that you can continually earn sustainable returns is either through pricing power or by becoming the lowest cost producer. The problem with the lowest cost producer is that when things like bureaucracy step in, uh, it can lead to increasing costs or it can just be difficult to sustain it uh, if others simply out-innovate you and bring down their costs even more. So again, notice that the difference with networks comparing that old world to the network economics. The other factor that's helpful, helpful um, is if you're in an industry that's growing at least as fast as GDP, uh, because think of it in the reverse direction. If you're in an industry that's shrinking as a percent of GDP, your pricing power might eventually bump up against that decline. But if it's maintaining share of GDP or a share of our budgets, or even growing faster and, and gaining share of GDP, then this would allow a backdrop where you can keep raising your prices as your network uh, value grows. Um, so uh, to pull this all together, we seek to identify uh, global champions businesses with enduring pricing power and long-term volume growth opportunities. And to recap this super important principle, pricing power is that ability to overcome deflationary pricing that comes from competition and innovation, allowing uh, you to consistently earn these high returns. Or put another way, if someone were to create an identical competitor, and, but your business can still charge a large premium and continue growing, then you have something really special. 
And as we've mentioned, this most often happens amongst network economics where the value grows exponentially. But again, if you don't have pricing power, you won't benefit from all that growth. I think that's the key point I'm trying to make here is that even if you're in a growing industry with a long runway of volume growth, you won't make great returns if prices are driven back down to the cost of capital. And so this is why we are so laser focused on pricing power. And so then we want to be able to see that ability to reinvest for as far as the eye can see, benefiting from the rise in global wealth. And if you can identify a business that possesses enduring pricing power in an industry that's maintaining share of GDP, then you're essentially indexed to grow at GDP or GDP plus based on those assumptions. So now let's uh, kind of make this more practical and, and discuss some of the holdings. Um, there's the classic network effects up in the upper left-hand corner. Um, these businesses, I won't spend a whole lot of time here because, and I'll spend more time on this slide to just really help relate the, the concepts, but MasterCard and Visa, I think everyone's well aware that there's strong network effects going on there where there's billions of, of credit card holders that are connected with millions of merchants, very strong network effect, very long runway uh, as cash is really their biggest competitor. Um, and it's about 70% more of the world still conducts transactions in cash. Um, Alphabet and Facebook, you know, here you're looking at advertising businesses. Um, Alphabet being more the, the, the people are seeking out that advertising, whereas Facebook is more of the it's advertisements that are pushed on you. But what's interesting, when you look at the backdrop of the industry, um, advertising has maintained its share of GDP over time, uh, been pretty stable, probably around three quarters to 1% of, of global GDP. If you can assume that these guys have pricing power as a result of these network effects, then again, they'll essentially act like a toll taker on that uh, global advertising growth of GDP, but only faster because their advertising is more effective and therefore they're, they're gaining share over time. Um, Microsoft, I can go into more if you guys want, but pro you know, probably one of the most followed stocks um, into it, um, Adobe. You know, Adobe, what's interesting to me, Adobe, yesterday I was speaking to uh, the person that helped create this presentation. And she was telling me, you know, she pays for uh, the Adobe product about $50 a month for what she subscribes to. And she said, you know, if they doubled the price, I wouldn't even bat an eye because the, the value of the products is so strong. Uh, so it's a low price relative to the value, as well as she said, it's a low price of her overall costs. Um, and then not only that, it's very networked because you're, you're sharing files with colleagues. You want to be able to go back and look at your old files. Um, and essentially, they become like the global language or a monopoly on all digital content creation. Um, and then Copart, you know, interesting. Copart's sort of like the eBay of the auto salvage world. So if you total your car, odds are pretty good that your car is running through a Copart auction. And so bringing this point home, if you and I were to create an identical business to Copart's and the same website and everything, the fact is people, even if we say, hey, we'll, we'll do it for half off, nobody's going to migrate to that platform because it's not where the action is going on. Um, we'd essentially have to pay billions upon billions to try to get users to come over to, to steal that business. Um, now, moving on from classic network effects, there's the protocol network effects. 
which by the way, kind of can overlap somewhat in, in the businesses as well in the classic network effects. But the protocol is that here is a protocol that is accepted. And most people probably don't think of Moody's and MSCI as network effects. But in the case of Moody's, you have, again, it's a global language that is understood by the capital markets. When you go to raise debt, so they put ratings on your debt, uh, them and S&P uh, are the two largest firms doing so, Fitch is a distant third. These are the languages that people use to understand how risky debt is. And what market participants know is that if they don't put a Moody's rating on it or an S&P, if they don't pay that seven basis points to rate it, their cost of debt will actually go up about 50 basis points. So it's a no brainer to pay seven to save 50. And again, if we create an identical business together saying, hey, we'll rate debt, the problem is that it's not part of that language globally recognized and the cost of debt would be too prohibitive for people to even want to experiment on our debt. That also brings up the principal agent problem where employees acting on the behalf of the owners, us as stock uh, owners, they are incentivized to make the conventional status quo choice. And so even if we were to offer something away less, they might say, well, why should I take the risk to my entire career? If this doesn't end up working out well, I would have made a big mistake. And so they, they continue to make that conventional choice. Um, MSCI, you know, global index provider for international indices, the gold standard, and it's largely a subscription business about three quarters of that, and they can continually raise prices on the subscription because again, it's that globally recognized language that is used by institutions to communicate and benchmark about performance. Now the belief network effects, you'll notice a list of a lot of luxury type businesses here. What's beautiful about uh, these belief network effects is that they have by definition, pricing power is built in. And the reason why is that a lot of these goods, they're connected to social status, which means that it needs to be costly to obtain to act as a good status filter. So as global wealth continues to rise, they have to raise their prices to continually make it difficult to obtain. And the more globally recognized that becomes, the more networked that, that becomes across the world, across this massive belief network. And the world continues as we showed before to grow, you're, you're looking at like China, there's hundreds of millionaires produced daily in, Ch in China. It's, it, the, the statistics are astounding. And so as this wealth goes up, not just among the ultra wealthy, but also the global middle class, these can continue to maintain, we believe, strong status filtering mechanisms and that the value of that filter is only strengthening as more users, if you will, are added to that network. Um, to hammer down on one, I love to talk about Hermes. You know, here's the Birkin bag that they sell compared to say like a bag that's at Target. If you go to Target, the bag's probably way cheaper today after you strip out inflation in real terms than what it is compared to, uh, than, than what it was compared to you know, 40 something years ago. Take Hermes on the other hand, and the Birkin bag has continually outpaced inflation and those bags sell for over $15,000 a bag. Um, and these companies are doing a lot to connect to status. You know, like Nike spends billions of dollars a year, have more resources than anybody to connect their brand to celebrity athletes and continue to create that uh, and, and make it a virtuous cycle of that enduring belief network. The more resources they get, the more they connect it to all the status and it continues around and around. Um, now, some weaker belief networks, 
Um, there is some there with the Colgate, the Procter & Gamble, the Unilever, the Pepsi. Um, what I'd point out here is that we prefer it when the brand is somehow, when the branding is attached to social status in some way. Um, because the problem is, is that if the brand is not attached to social status, search costs are coming down these days. Uh, particularly, you see that with Amazon, it makes it easy to search your product. You see all these Amazon reviews. You might say, well, you know, I see 10,000 reviews to buy, you know, I have six kids. Okay. So we have, we've gone through a lot of diapers in our life. And if you were to say, I'm going to uh, look for diapers and I can find them way cheaper through a competing offer offering. And Amazon says there's 10,000 reviews saying it's, you know, five star. I might be willing to risk it. Uh, whereas before, you know, we'd all hear the same jingles and there's no chance I want to risk money on something else just because it's a little bit cheaper for fear that I get a blowout <laughs> with in my kids' pants. So you would stick with the most highest quality type diaper. So my point is, is that loyalty can be getting uh, slowly affected, uh, easier to potentially switch if it's not com connected to status in some way. And then you got these uh, brokerage networks, um, you know, Aon and Marshmack. There's a lot that could be said about them, but Again, globally connected CBRE group across the globe to help Fortune 500 companies serve their insurance needs, their real estate needs. You have that principal agent problem again there. And these industries, again, are they are uh, they maintain their share of GDP historically for over 100 years. Um, then uh, data network effects, you have uh, Verisk, which is a consortium of uh, uh insurance companies came together, gave their data to Verisk, and then Verisk, it becomes mission critical. And Verisk then at a very small price, small cost of the budget, uh, but a tremendous value because it's mission critical to price your insurance needs, allows them to continually raise prices year after year and fight off that uh, deflationary effect. And then in the bottom right corner, we have switching costs that primarily are what are helping the banks um, and uh, low cost producer through progressive. But you'll notice that the, the key phenomenon here is we're trying to find businesses that are global champions connected somehow to network effects that allows them to essentially become like a toll taker on global GDP growth over time. And we believe that if we have a portfolio chock full of these global champions, then we will inevitably come out on top. Now, the other thing here is it's scrambled another way. You can see we've tried to construct a portfolio that has many sleeves um, so that the cash flows aren't completely correlated and it's robust against various economic outcomes. Uh, you can see here various industries, various products to protect against technological disruption. We have lots of geographic diversification uh, to protect against demographic and political uncertainties. And you'll notice most of these businesses are fairly acyclical to protect against macroeconomic uncertainty. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, with the banks and even with the insurance brokerages, uh, we have in interest rate hedges to protect um, against rising rates. Uh, because if rates rise, as we're all probably very well familiar with, the valuation multiples of most businesses are extremely likely to compress. Rates have come down low, making multiples extremely high. And if that were to reverse course, the nice thing is the banks would probably uh, potentially earn more money and then get a higher multiple assigned on that. But of course, the fear is, is what if rates go the other way and, and it becomes more like a Japan-like scenario? Um, and then there's even diversity among investing styles. We own some stocks that are considered growth. 
others that are considered value, which is not how we think about it. Uh, but since others do, it does make it a risk to protect against. And so ultimately, we hope that this portfolio can move forward regardless of the wide array of future outcomes and um, helps us, you know, we sleep well at night uh, knowing that we're in these, these collection of global champions. So next uh, you, uh, point to bring up is that you want to protect your shareholder interests. Uh, we do that by seeking out ownership-minded management teams and conservative capital structures. Now, the reason it's so critical, obviously, the more motivated you are, the more you can invest your business for the long run, not trying to meet short-term metrics on Wall Street. And they've shown studies that show that family-owned companies have outperformed non-family companies. Uh, and But I do want to point out that while family-owned uh, is not required, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that we want to ensure that management's incentives are aligned with ours and they have a history of of treating minority shareholders well. And then uh, conservative capital structure, this chart shows in dark blue, the level of total debt as a percent of GDP. It shows how the rate of defaults, which is in the light blue, tends to follow high levels of debt. And so the point is there are boom and bust debt cycles and we wanna make sure that our businesses will survive and even thrive in a deep recession uh, so that you're able to avoid blow up risk. All right. Finally, um, probably what most of the community is very uh, familiar with is the key to not overpay. And we calculate uh, forward-looking returns adjusted for risk. There's a lot of ways to do this, um, but our main approach is to dig into the financials, understand what is the normalized cash flow that's available to shareholders, divide that by the price to get a shareholder yield, and then we'll add a conservative terminal growth rate uh, to get a sense of the expected return. And then you rank it much like a bond table, trying to think through how confident are we in these cash flows, how predictable are they? Uh, in other words, it's like how wide is the bell curve, if you will. And then another thing to protect, as I've mentioned, uh, avoid from overpaying is the, uh, the high quality business mispricing where we're very focused on high quality businesses which is nice because they tend to be perpetually undervalued uh, relative to their dominance and predictability and uh, strong growing cash flows. And then there's another mispricing that I wanna bring up which stems from the short-term nature of investors, the market timing mispricing. So here, this chart, one of our favorites, um, the stock market's driven by obviously economic growth. And so probably the most basic followed statistic is GDP. Well, in this graph, the red line is the prediction, the blue line is the actual outcome. And what's clear to me is professional forecasters who do this for a living are almost always wrong. And so if they can't get the first derivative right about GDP, then how do we as investors expect to accurately time the second derivative? In other words, the, the movement of the stock market. Now, if you still want to try to time it, hopefully this slide will give you a little pause. Uh, the evidence is pretty clear that on average, humans just can't time it. Um, you know, I've seen plenty of people who, who nail it on the head and then they predict 10 of the next zero recessions. So as you can see in this chart, because whether it's 
due to fear uh, or due to greediness and patience over confidence. Investors' constant attempts at market timing have resulted in a large gap between the annualized return of what they could have gotten had they just sat still and the average stock fund investor. And because of this, I guess what I'm saying is we don't want to have the overconfidence that we can somehow time it when nobody else can seem to do it consistently. And note the penalty adds up big over time. Over this time period, when you look on the right, or sorry, on the left, you can see they got half the returns, but then on the right, they ended up with one quarter of the amount of the money. So, but it's not just the overall market that the investors can't time. Let's move uh, to the next slide. It's also individual stocks. So investors tend to believe that they can trade skillfully enough to avoid short-term pain that a business might be currently experiencing or that it may experience while still participating in the upside once the problems get resolved. Um, and so we point out that sometimes and oftentimes the best opportunities are businesses with favorable long-term economics and predictability, but the market's gloomy on it for some reason in the short run, there's some sort of headwinds that may be temporary. And so it's to us, it's absolutely music to our ears when we hear someone say, oh man, that business, it has an incredible future, but it's dead money right now. And so again, we believe it's not only a flaw to try and time the general market, but also to try and time an individual stock based on macroeconomic beliefs or just temporary operational issues that you'll try to get in right when it gets the problems are removed. Now, this is not to say that you should just buy any stock at any price. Of course, you wanna make sure that the price you're paying is one that's believed to provide satisfactory returns from that entry point. And so you can align your, your assets in, in the, the most convincing assets at the most convincing price. Um, now, I wanna turn briefly to the value of low turnover because I think that it's, it's underappreciated. By not selling, we can compound on Uncle Sam's money. And once we accept that we cannot time the market, then your focus turns to identifying resilient and superior businesses that you hope that you can own for a lifetime. And so to illustrate uh, how advantageous this can potentially become, I wanna go through this example. Here, both, both portfolios are growing at 10%, but in patient Paul's case, he holds it for 30 years and he only pays taxes once at the long-term rates when he sells. In Trigger Tom's case, he's selling each year at short-term rates. And what's astounding is if you choose to sell during that short-term period, Trigger Tom needs to earn a 17% pre-tax return just to get the same outcome as patient Paul. Now, if you were to say, well, what if I always hold it at least a year and then I rotate, obviously it gets a lot better, but if Tom paid the same tax rate as, uh, as patient Paul, then it's still about 11.5% pre-tax to break even. And that 1.5% adds up huge over a lifetime of investing. So I guess the point I'm making is whenever you go to sell, keep in mind that you have to make up a lot of ground to not only cover the tax bill, but to make up for the fact that you can no longer compound on Uncle Sam's money. Because once you pay those taxes, they're gone forever. And so taxes do make a, a huge difference. Uh, the way we kind of think about it, we'll, we'll look at it in a couple different ways. We'll project expected returns and think how long does it take for me to, to compound at a higher rate of return and a better opportunity to then cross over 
uh, versus the opportunity of saying, I paid, I, I bought a stock, excuse me, I sold a stock, paid the tax, I invest a lower amount and, and invest in that higher rate. Um, how long does that take to then cross over to if I just sit in the in the other company and compound at a slower rate? Or in other ways, you can kind of think of it in terms of if I pay taxes, instead of selling at the, the market price, it's sort of like I'm selling at the market price minus the tax impact. Is this a value, a price at which I'd be wanting to continue to hold this business as opposed to sell it? So to bring it all home, we believe that the best recipe for success is to invest in global champions with enduring pricing power and long-term volume growth opportunities. You want to make sure uh, to protect yourself by being aligned with ownership-minded management teams and watching out for aggressive capital structures to avoid blow-up risk. And, and notice here, so basically what I'm saying is all investing comes down to what you buy, which is these points one and two, and then it's what you pay for it in point three. You don't want to overpay by making sure that your entry points pr uh, price to produce attractive returns. And we believe that you stack the odds in your favor. If you're fishing in that pond of high quality businesses where we believe um, that they're perpetually undervalued. And then beware that you don't fall for that trap of believing that you can successfully time the market or an individual stock. I've had plenty of experience. You know, one that comes to my mind right now is CoStar Group where years ago, I thought what an incredible business, but man, it's just so richly valued. And in hindsight, uh, and I, I tried to think in terms of if the multiple compresses, could you still get a satisfactory rate of return? And the answer was yes. And I should have, rather than trying to just uh, time it and wait for a better entry point, just accepted it because instead I ended up missing out on compounding at su very superior uh, compounding for many years to come. Um, and then at the end, uh, finally just wait patiently and compound on top of Uncle Sam's capital as well by hopefully being able to hold those superior businesses for the long haul. And as the saying goes, if you've done your job right, the time to sell is never. Uh, but of course, the market may provide better opportunities or the business dynamics may change uh, because in a way, all businesses are constantly under attack and being disrupted. So it's just a matter of your time frame. Uh, and we're just trying to focus primarily on the ones that appear to have the most enduring nature. So with that, I'll I'll open it up to questions and hopefully I'll be able to come up with some answers. <laughs> All righty. So it does look like we have a, a decent amount of questions built up here, Brian, that we can go ahead and jump into uh, kicking things off for us. Um, mm -hmm. The beginning of this question is just thanks for taking the time to answer these questions and come out and give the presentation. Uh, sure. Definitely some audience appreciation out there. Yeah, um, I'm happy to do it. Absolutely. And with uh, large market moves this year, do you think that selling calls and puts still add value to such an environment? Uh, yeah, so I didn't bring up that portion of the strategy which we use in the mutual fund. Um, but uh, we do. So it, the same concept is going on there with the calls and puts where uh, people we believe are overpaying to purchase covered calls or overpaying to buy the insurance through uh, puts. When we utilize options, I want to point out we have no leverage involved, um, but we are using cash secured puts or covered calls. And the main thing that you can see how, how much you're getting paid for that is by looking at implied volatilities. 
And, you know, when the market was crashing, the implied vols spiked huge. And then, of course, uh, well, not of course, but surprisingly to me, they've actually maintained that they've, they've stayed fairly high, uh, even though the, usually when the market roars like this, the implied vol drastically drops. And that shows you that there's still, you know, they call it the fear gauge, plenty of fear out there. But the idea, um, just so that all the, the, the other um, users understand the concept, in some ways, it's almost like putting a limit order in uh, to say, I want to own this business. I, I, I already want to own it. But I can put in a limit order by saying I will write a cash secured put against it and someone is willing to pay me to put in that limit order. But it's more than that. We, we look at it really in terms of what is the, the expected return you can get on that option by saying what is the, the yield by looking at how much premium will I pull in, divide that by the stock price and then annualize it to, uh, and then tax affect it to say what if this becomes short term income? Is that expected return higher than the expected return uh, if I were to just own the stock outright? And so it's like an indirect way to get exposure to the stock. And we've had examples where we continually are pulling in premium, even though the stock continues to go up, but the rate of the premiums being pulled in after tax is still higher than the rate of appreciation of the stock. And there's studies out there that show that that is the case on average over long periods of time, that the writers of options actually make more money than the owners of the underlying stock. So then you might ask, well, why don't you just do an entire portfolio writing the options? And the answer is pretty simple. It's because you can have some black swan events where, or maybe I should call it like super white swans, or I don't know what to call it, but a super roaring market where you get left behind in the dust and you're just left there holding a little tiny premium. Um, but anyway, so to answer your question, yes, we are finding that when you look at those implied vols, you look at the cash you're pulling in and you create a yield out of it, annualize it, tax affect it, that, that that is still often, in many cases, providing a wider rate of return over the individual stock. Understood. Thanks for that. Yeah. So next question here. Uh, how do you size positions when buying or selling and if the stock price of a, a franchise company goes up significantly, would you ever consider completely selling out of it? Uh, the question was about uh, sizing. So sizing, what we're usually looking at, again, trying to have that going back to that, how we're, how the portfolio, uh, we want it to be all the cash flow is not correlated too high in one area over another. And so if you were to look at the way I've grouped that on that slide, and you were to sum up the various position sizes in these various types of industries, you'll find that in most cases, we probably rarely exceed a 7% uh, total position in one area. Um, but like if you were to take just certain categories, some of them we might even have lower than that 7%. So as an example, like MasterCard and Visa, we might have 3.5% in each, which totals to a 7. Or we might have in the advertising in Facebook and Google, about three and a half in each totals to a seven. Um, but we also are going to size it based on, uh, of course, the expected return. If the expected return is too small, we might want to just have a small sliver. And so it really is just an art and something that you develop, I guess, as you do it over long periods of time. We're, like I said, we're looking at a bond table of what's the expected return, what's the risk associated with it. And we want to make sure that the portfolio is robust against various outcomes. Understood. And part two, real briefly, do you ever hit a point of 
something going up so significantly in price that you'd want to sell out of it? Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, and yeah, so definitely that is a possibility. But I, again, I, it just becomes very hard. You want to really give that a lot of thought before you do it. Because like I say, once you sell it, those taxes are gone. Um, and so the, the, the way to do that, again, is that what I brought up previously about looking at the crossover. Is it worth it to sell the stock at a lower rate of return? Because when the stock price goes up, your forward rate of return goes down. Is it better to sit in this lower forward rate of return or will it make sense to sell, pay taxes, invest a lower amount of money in another business that where I can potentially compound at a faster rate? And we, we just try to make that judgment call as best as we can. Um, but certainly, I mean, if something were to get too astronomical, we're always looking at what are all the available opportunities that are out there. And if something better comes along and it makes sense after you take taxes into a, a, into a consideration, then certainly we'll, we'll make changes. Gotcha. And of course, the other time we'll make a change is uh, if we made a mistake, you know, uh, we're not going to be perfect and uh, you might sell and move on simply because not because the stock goes up. It could be that the stock goes down. Usually when the stock goes down, we're excited and we want to buy more, but it could be that there's something very serious that's changed um, and we no longer see it as possessing enduring pricing power. Then we, we just say, look, don't get emotional about it and just, cut your losses and move on. Understood. And looks like uh, next question here, uh, one that's been of some popular interest in the last couple of presentations. Uh, Biogen has been consistently growing its revenue and book value for the past 15 years. At the moment, it's trading at a PE of eight following a negative review for its new medicine. Uh, do you think this is a, a good opportunity? So the problem with Biogen is that we, there's a couple things. First off, in just healthcare in general, you'll notice that we don't have healthcare in the portfolio. Healthcare, which by the way, we have historically, we've had Becton Dickinson, we've had CR Bard, which made, so Becton Dickinson was primarily the needle side of things, but now it's a very diversified conglomerate. And uh, in fact, they swallowed up uh, CR Bard, which did, does catheters. And you know, there you see again, small purchase price of an item, and uh, but tremendous value. And it seemed like if healthcare had a problem, they would be less at the forefront and uh, attacked by the government. But the problem we see with, with healthcare is just that, that you have people on both sides of the aisle that are clamoring against the healthcare system. And in many respects, be, because the way insurance is involved, the way the government's involved, it cr it's created kind of like a cartel, if you will, that's allowed pricing power. So you would think when you look at a chart that healthcare more than almost any industry has had tremendous pricing power. Our fear is, is that it's not necessarily because of the value being provided by the network, but that it's because of a collusion. And that if something were to happen, we don't know what the economics are of those businesses in a new regime. Um, so my first comment is just to say we already have an aversion to healthcare to begin with. But then when you start talking about a bio, biotech company, um, I, I just think it's hard. you got to pick the right winner. The, the one thing that they have going for them over, say, like the traditional pharmaceuticals like Pfizer, Merck, Eli Lilly, is that those are easier to copy compounds that are 
once the patent runs off, you see the pricing power just diminish immediately and they have to continually reinvent. The same is true for these companies, but it's far less so because it's much more difficult to replicate when there's way more chemicals and uh, things involved than just a few compounds. So I guess I'd say there, it's, it, there's interesting things, but overall, we just have an aversion to trying to, I, I look at Biogen and I say, do I know for certain that they will be the leading edge making materially more money 10, 20 years from now? And to me, that's a harder question to answer. So I put it in the too hard pile and we take a pass. Gotcha. And uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and, and jump here uh, real quick. Okay. Let me find the question. Oh, did I, I might have lost it. Oh, we'll, we'll get there eventually once I find it again. Okay, no problem. Um as I as I mentioned when we were uh, when we were speaking earlier this week, a, a question that we've had come up a lot. Um, do you have any thoughts on um, gold mining and, in particular, Kirkland Lake gold? So, with gold, you know, we have probably the viewpoint that a lot of uh, value type investors have, which is it's it's just a commodity. You know, if you took all the gold in the world, you melt it into a cube. Um, it could fit in a baseball diamond. And Warren Buffett, he went through this example once and he he said, look, the fact of the matter is, is many years from now, that gold cube is still the gold cube. Uh, he said, you can you can fondle it all you want, but it's it, it, it won't respond. Whereas when you look at a business that produces cash flow, then if you were to own one over the other a decade from now, I mean, if you look at gold, you have seven and a half centuries when you go back to, you can actually find data from England that produces all this, this gold data. Gold after you adjust for inflation is trading at the same price today as it was seven and a half centuries ago. And what we're looking for is something that has pricing power that can actually grow its percent of GDP at a minimum, maintain its share. So the industry already is a problematic. And then the gold miners is very capital intensive. In fact, um, I think, let me see if I can. Uh, let me see if I can share my screen again. I actually don't. I, I don't think I can. Darn it, uh, because I think I got signed out somehow. But what's uh, interesting? I was going to show a chart about. Um, oh wait, hold on. I'm so sorry. I wanted to see if I can get that to. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't see a way to share it. So, um, but if you were to make a grid in your mind and on that grid, you were to plot uh, consistency of cash flows on one axis and then return on tangible assets on the other. What we want to do is avoid the area where you have inconsistent cyclical cash flows and they're super capital intensive. That part of the grid or the matrix you want to avoid. And gold miners fit right in that matrix. We'd much prefer to see a very high return on tangible assets, a very efficient use of capital, and that that cash flow is like an avalanche of cash that just consistently comes and never stops. We think that that will stack the odds in your favor. So, you know, coming back to gold, it's difficult to value. If the stock market were to close, 
how do you put a value on something when there's no cash being produced by it? Whereas with the businesses we own, if the stock market closed, you're still an owner of these businesses. I'm totally fine continuing to own and collect the cash that's being produced by those businesses. Understood. And on that note, jumping back to that question uh, that I was looking for earlier, uh, we've yeah. we've hit healthcare, we've we've hit gold now. Um, doesn't look like there was any mention of energy companies. Do you do you have a stance on the industry there? Yeah, same concept where the industry is just tre- under tremendous deflationary pressure, and so I think that there's a lot of holdings there that look like attractive, deep value, but we're just not interested at all um, because the industry to begin with is losing as it's it's shrinking as a percentage of GDP through alternatives and other sources. I mean, this is a phenomenon that's been going on for a very long time. Obviously, you could have made money for decades through these big behemoth energy players. Um, but over the long run, we think it's just challenging and it's more difficult to be confident that you will make an enduring high sustainable return on those assets. And the, the energy industry primarily, again, is capital intensive combined with cyclicality. The problem with that is when you're capital intensive, you have a very low return on assets. If you have a low return on assets, in order for you to be to get a high return on equity as a shareholder, you need to leverage it up. And they, they jack up the ROE by taking on a lot of debt. Well, that makes a recipe for disaster if you have a lot of debt and then you go through a cyclically down period, um, you, you end up with a lot of big trouble, which is what we've seen going on in the energy industry. Um, another thing I want to, I think this leads to another point that I want to bring up uh, to the community. You know, you look at some of the holdings we have and you might think, how on earth can you call this value? And and to us, um, we don't, like I said, think in terms of value and growth. We believe that the business is attached to the hip of what the return will become. And so we don't, we're not interested in a business that's shrinking or dying um, because the only way that that really works is if the margin of safety that you buy in at is so wide that your yield to the death of the company is high. And those are really hard opportunities to find these days. And, and the problem too is, is that even if it appears that the yield to death is high, a lot of the companies when they're shrinking may end up shrinking even faster. When people know the writings on the wall, you might lose motivation among employees and, uh, and management. Um, you also probably don't have control. Well, you don't have control as a minority shareholder to control the direction of those cash flows. And so they may continually reinvest and you don't know how they're going to reinvest that dying cash flow. Uh, that's different if you're Warren Buffett and you can buy the business and take it private and direct the cash flows and harvest them. Um, so I guess what I'm bringing up is I see, you know, obviously our way of investing is not the only way, but we take a lot of comfort and believe that it's a consistent way to have repeatable great returns and can't promise them, of course, but but we believe that and very strongly. And we think that there's a lot of flaws to just taking a strict deep value approach um, you know, with gold, if it's non-cash producing, then you're dependent on others to close the valuation gap. Meaning the longer, if you want to buy something at a discount, you say, oh, I think it's worth a 10 PE, but it's trading at a 5 PE. 
Well, then your rate of return is dependent on how long someone takes to close that gap. Whereas if you own a business that's producing cash, has enduring pricing power, has a long runway of volume growth opportunities and reinvestment, then it can continue to grow even better in some of these businesses like Intuit or Adobe or MSCI, Moody's, where they almost require no capital to continually grow and act as a toll taker on the economy. Uh, MasterCard, Visa, the same. There you are not dependent on others to close the valuation gap at all. And you can just sit back and watch the magic happen. Um, and then the other thing about deep value that concerns me is just there's few opportunities. You have to keep finding them. And if it does hit your price target, you sell, you move on. It becomes tax inefficient. And I've just personally found that there's a high mental cost or a very high psychological drain, if you will. I'll bet you know a lot of deep value holders in the middle of March were, were sweating bullets, you know, and it's just a high mental cost. And then I feel like over the long run, you end up with a very low return per unit of time and effort. Um, so anyway, that's a very long-winded answer, but I, I, I think, um, yeah, well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we like our approach. <laughs> For sure. And uh, next one here, do you, do you have any stance on spinoffs? Do you think they represent good opportunities, especially if uh, insiders own a big share of them? I think, again, that just you take it on a case-by-case basis. Um, and I, I think it there's really, I don't think there's anything that I can say that's overarching that on average, this is how to view it. Um, I think it's just a case-by-case basis. And I think you might need to be careful that sometimes just like IPOs can get a lot of excitement around them. Um, with spinoffs, you might have something like that where there might be excitement uh, to want to own what's being spun off and it could create a rich price. On the other hand, it could be that they're spinning it off because they believe it's holding down the valuation of their core business. And in that case, that could provide an opportunity if the business is coming under pressure of people selling off that piece. But I'd again, be careful because if every if the market is in general consensus that this is not a business you want to own, then I worry about, you know, again, does it have enduring pricing power? And I didn't explain the, you know, some of the metrics we look at, but um, obviously, the biggest thing we do is we focus on just common sense, what makes a business tick and give it pricing power. So if you have an identical competitor, you still can't drive down the price. They can maintain their high price and still grow volume. But there are signs or symbols of it, um, signals. You can see high gross margins. You can see high returns on invested capital, high returns on tangible assets. So your operating income divided by all the tangible capital you're putting to work, property, plant, and equipment, plus an inventory, plus networking capital. Um, and if you see you know, high gross margins and those gross margins are rising, all of these could be potential evidence that you have uh, enduring pricing power. And so that, that's primarily what we're looking at. Understood. Uh, looking down the list here, um, Looks like stock market price value versus GDP seems to be at a, a record high right now. Any comments there? <laughs> you know, this is the one that I think is on everybody's mind, um, not just market cap to GDP. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do have comments there. 
remember that that, I don't know how relevant, by the way, that it is relevant to a point, but I think keep in mind that a lot of these businesses are becoming global. You have different tax rates. Um, so market cap to GDP is basically like a price to sales graph. Well, if the economy is becoming wider margin, more service type businesses, less capital intensive manufacturing businesses with very thin margins, if your margins are going up and if your tax rates are low, then naturally it means that the price to sales multiple today should be higher than the past. And so that's really not an apples to apples comparison. Um, but if you look at the Schiller Cape ratio, which tries to look at all the, you know, just on the earnings side and strip that out, nobody's going to argue that the market's cheap. I mean, it's ex very expensive. Um, you know, it's, it's as high as higher than what it was at the before the Great Depression, not as high as it was in 2000. Um, but ultimately, when questions about the market valuation come up, you know, and people ask, is it overvalued or is it undervalued? I don't like to think of it in those terms. And the reason why is because I feel like that's a statement on predicting what rate of return other people are willing to accept. In other words, if I were to tell you, if you were to say everybody who buys a stock is expecting to get on average a 10% rate of return because that's what they've gotten over the last 30, 40 years or whatever it is, then I would tell you, yes, the market is extremely overvalued because if you were to buy in at these prices, um, in my mind, I, I, it's almost, there's almost no question that the rate of return moving forward will be lower over you know, the next decade or so than what it was historically. But I say almost, I say it carefully, because you know, that's assuming that valuations need to compress sometime in the next 10 years. And I cannot guarantee with rates being low, if they were to stay low, uh, which some very smart you know, market prognosticators think it will happen, that it will stay low for a long time. If that were to happen, who knows? I mean. Japan went up to a 90 on the CAPE ratio, whereas we're only in like 32, I think it is, or 33 right now. Imagine tripling your market return 10 years from now just on valuations. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Um, I would be more in the camp of it's expensive, so be careful and make sure you know what you're buying and that you feel very confident in the growth profile uh, and that the business is very un uh, extremely unlikely to be disrupted to be able to stack the odds in your favor that you can outperform overall in the end. Um, but again, I think the question really is the market overvalued or not is probably not the right way to look at it. It's more about if I buy it today, what forward rate of return can I expect based on today's prices? And if that rate of return is in far in excess of other places that you could invest, then is it overvalued? You know, it, that's so you could look at it in that relative perspective, but there's the when well, and I should say, if you only think of it in that term, the fear is that if you only think I must get this hurdle rate, the problem is if your hurdle rate was too high in 1980s, you never would have even been an investor in the stock market for the last 30 years. Uh, on the other hand, if well, and, and not on the other hand, on the same token, you could end up chasing, trying to get a hurdle, you actually go down in quality. And then you end up with a pile of garbage that looks like it'll be a high expected return, 
but it's a very wide bell curve with lots of outcomes and you could get hit with that big fat tail risk. So on the other hand, if you look at it from a relative perspective of how much do I think I can, well, I don't want to say relative, we are absolute investors. We want to know that we can get that return. But what I'm trying to say is, is that the market may not be as overvalued as it appears when compared to other investing alternatives. Um, so I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but in the end, we just say, look, we can't time it. All I can do is look for the best businesses, most superior franchises in the world. The ones that I believe will be around 10, 20 years from now that will be materially larger than than they are today that have proven to have historical pricing power. And we believe that will endure into the future. And if I can identify with those, I want a portfolio that's chock full of them because then I believe over time that we will naturally float to the top. Understood. And shifting focus a little bit here, um, just to take a step back and go more towards your firm itself. Um, what is the relationship, if any, between your YCG fund and the uh, Yachtman family of mutual funds, i.e. AMG Yachtman funds? So uh, Don Yachtman is, is my father. Uh, Steve Yachtman is my brother. And uh, I used to work at the firm and I am, you know, I'm just incredibly grateful for all the lessons I learned while I was there. I mean, it was really a tremendous opportunity to learn from my father. Um, he's just such a great guy. And despite his great success, he's incredibly humble. And, um, you know, I continue to talk to him all the time to this day because and we're peas in a pod and we're always talking about these. Um, th this is what we relate with, you know. Um, but having said that, AMG does not make any, you know, there's no, that the two firms are, you know, consider like a, a wall of China between the two in that we're not sharing, uh, you know, we're not sending a spreadsheet to each other. I'm not telling them what stocks to buy. They're not telling me what stocks to buy. So we're very separate firms. Um, but obviously there's the family, the family relationship. And, and this is the type of stuff that we talk about. You know, if I go to a family dinner, can't help but talk about it because it's, 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 it's the biggest part of our lives. <laughs> gotcha. And moving down our list here, uh, does it look like we have a, a, a decent amount of questions here? So we'll, we'll try and uh, kind of cruise through these as much as we can. Uh, looking at your conservative uh, capital structure chart, because debt is at an all-time high today, do you see a, a crisis looming, and is there a time frame for that? So I think timing would always be hard to try to forecast and predict. Um, but uh, is there a concern? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are in a more indebted world than ever before, and it's the largest debt experiment of all history. So uh, does it concern us? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely on our mind. I think that, um, you know, under one school of thought, because of all that debt, it initially, as you take on debt, it juices returns and can lead to higher growth. But you can get to a point where the, the, uh, the growth in debt exceeds uh, that, that beneficial point to where each new ad additional dollar of debt actually starts to slow down. 
And so I think that's what a lot are arguing is, is that because of this high, uh, this high debt level, it means that more money is needing to go towards servicing, uh, servicing these debts. So I, I think, uh, you know, it just comes back to trying to make sure that you're thinking through, are you invested in businesses that are conservatively capitalized that if you do have a problem, I mean, there, I've seen those charts that have been made by various investors about how a huge percentage of uh, debt today is a is a, is triple B relative to the past. And so as that percentage continues to climb, yeah, I mean, you could very much potentially have a crisis looming. And I worry about the zombie companies that are just being allowed to continue to survive when they probably shouldn't be. Um, but... It doesn't mean um, that I then take decisions. I don't look at it from a macro perspective and say the world is highly indebted. Therefore, we should now invest uh, in this sector or this industry based on that. Instead, I come back to if it has the pricing power, if the cash flows will be consistent, then you can see a path to profits regardless of what happens, though the debt may slow down uh, the, the rate of growth in the economy. Um, if, if that makes sense, Definitely. because you're like, you're needing to service all that debt. Definitely. And, uh, looks like we have a question here. Um, looking at your, your work process to establish intrinsic value. Uh, they want to know if that's proprietary information or, uh, if there's a little bit, you can kind of divulge there on, you know, what are your kind of steps for truly establishing what the, the value of a business is? Yeah, I have, have no problem talking about it. Um, you know, as you could probably tell from the comments I've made before, we're, we're not big fans of trying to build out like a huge DCF model. And um, yeah, I feel like a lot of that can become, you know, Geigo, garbage in, garbage out. And so, you can with a with with a cash DCF model. I feel like you can make the business worth whatever you want to make it worth. Um, and then I, I, you know, the the price target's always constantly moving as the the business changes. So it's not really the way we like to look at it. We like to take the Gordon growth formula, which is essentially what's used to create a DCF model. It's that the value of a stock, the price, this is the Gordon growth formula, is equal to next year's dividend divided by the discount rate minus the terminal growth rate. So what we like to do is flip that equation around and solve for the discount rate, meaning what is the expected rate of return? And what that will equal is next year's dividend divided by price. And we're not looking at dividend, of course, we're looking at cash flow that is available to the shareholders, whether it's paid out in a dividend or not. They could keep it, they could use it to buy back stock or they could use it to reinvest. Um, and then you add to that a terminal growth rate. If you find that more, tons is being used to reinvest, making the shareholder yield low in the present, you should, you better see a very high growth rate indicating that these are profitable investments. On the other hand, um, you could have a very mature, stable business, which is easier than to create, I'd call it a narrow bell curve in your mind to be able to say, okay, this is the, the dividends, the share the, the share repurchases being produced by the company. Because th think about like businesses like a Colgate or a Pepsi or a Procter & Gamble. They have so much excess cash 
they don't know what to do with it. And so naturally what they do, they, they don't have enough reinvestment opportunities. They just shower it out. So I guess what I'm trying to get is on the one hand, you can have a business that's stable, mature, that has a very high percentage of free cash flow as a percentage of your earnings. That cash flow that's being paid out to shareholders in the present, dividends plus share repurchases. And then you can look at that yield plus a growth rate and you develop an expected rate of return. The growth rate might be, you know, look at real growth due to market share taking, population growth, inflation, uh, due to widening margins on the business as it scales up. Um, and you create an expected return. But on the other hand, uh, you could have businesses where you actually like to see that the cash is not mature. It's not being paid out to dividends and dividends and share repurchases in the present. So there you might just look at what is the free cash flow? And we typically will subtract the acquisitions. Um, we want to understand because acquisitions are often capital maintenance, capital expenditures in disguise. And then you just get a sense of what it's like you're Sherlock. You're trying to figure out what is how much cash is truly being generated by this business? What are the returns that they're making? And again, the biggest problem is if you are really attractive at making high returns on little amount of capital, competition and innovation steps in and drives down those returns. And so we want to understand, is there something that will not let that happen? Something special that allows them to continue to have that enduring pricing power. But, I, you know, again, that's a long form answer. But the point is, is that we're developing a forward rate of return. And then we think about it in terms adjusted for risk. That's a more subjective thing. But you can put paper to pen and create a shareholder yield plus terminal growth. And then the other thing that you could do if you want to, but we're less of a fan of this, is you could try to say, okay, well, how much cash do we envision this business producing if it, if we assume it will have pricing power over the next several years? And you could say, what if it's at this multiple today, but then what will, will the multiple be in the future? I'm much less a fan of that because now you're trying to predict what other people are willing to pay for something. Um, but you can do that to try to say if something appears to be high, a high multiple, is it that if I, under the hood inside the business, what's it compounding at? Because over a long period of time, the stock price should more or less mirror that, that investment rate of return, but then it will be adjusted higher or lower if you end up paying more on a higher valuation in the future, or it will be adjusted lower if you overpay and, uh, and, the, and the, the valuation multiples compress. Um, and then there's one other comment I was going to make, darn it. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but anyway, there, the point is that we create that forward rate of return. And, and so that means we often don't do like some of the part businesses because it's very difficult. You create the sum of the parts and then you wonder, and we'll look at it sometimes, but you're again, depending on other people to close a valuation gap. I want to know that there's an expected rate of return with or without what people choose to pay for the business. But I want to maybe sometimes look at the valuation compression to know if it compresses considerably in the next 10 years, what kind of return do I still get? And if that's satisfactory, then we'll be interested. Oh, and I remember what it was. It's that when you're looking at this, I think one of the most underappreciated things after you adjust for, you know, stock options, pensions, leases, and you look at what the true cash flow is, probably the most 
most underappreciated thing by investors is the ability to grow with low reinvestment needs. So you want to have the ability to reinvest for a long period of time. But as I said earlier, how great is it if you don't have to reinvest a ton, yet you still can grow the business? Those businesses should surely carry a much higher valuation than a business that requires enormous amounts of capital to continue to grow. And that's one of my things, you know, against Tesla. Not only is the valuation absurd, I don't think there will be pricing power. And the amount of capital that's going to be required is so tremendous. I, I just cannot even believe what people are willing to pay for that. I see stuff like that. And yeah, it does make you wonder, you know, we're in a period of ripe speculation when you can pay that kind of money for Tesla. It's just not my cup of tea at all. Definitely. All righty. Let's see. Looks like we're we're getting towards the end of our, our questions here. Um, how do you weigh uh, between competition in the industry versus sector-specific and company-specific dynamics? Um, looks like our examples are Agrico or First Cash here. So we don't own those, um, and so I can't speak half intelligently about those. But how do we look at competition in the industry? Um, I mean, I guess just the objective way we, you know, we might want to look at when you're looking at an industry, you might look at, okay, what's the total addressable market. Um, but I want to be careful when I say that word, cause I see wild numbers that can get thrown around that are crazy. You know, Uber's addressable market, total addressable market is bazillion <laughs> apparently. Um, but you might, you, you look at that, you might look at all the various players. I like to understand, do they have an, um, is there an incentive for other people to compete against what you have? Um, so sometimes if it's a slow growth, excuse me, if it's a slow growth industry, then it may be discouraging. Why would anyone want to really try hard to disrupt toothpaste? Um, but they command, you know, nearly 50% market share around the globe. And, um, you know, the, the competition there, it's such a small price tag that hardly anybody thinks about when they go into the grocery aisle, am I going to buy a $2 tube of toothpaste or am I going to buy a $2 and 20 cent? You know, they just go and they grab what they, they know they're familiar with. And I think that makes it very difficult to disrupt. Um, but you might look at another industry like, you know, the music industry. And I, I see big players like Amazon and Apple and uh, Google with the YouTube music. Everybody's vying to get the usage over their platforms. And when they have so many resources at their disposal and they can use it as a way to be a loss leader uh, against other, uh, as a loss leader to just try to keep the eyeballs or keep users on their platform, that would make me scared to be an investor in Pandora or Spotify to see that there could be that uh, fierce competition and, and an ability to uh, basically undercut price completely, offer it for free, um, especially in a world that we're a wash in cash and lots of money sloshing around in Silicon Valley that's subsidizing a lot of businesses these days. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think about like Porter's Five Forces that is taught in every textbook. I mean, those are the real things that you should be looking at. It's to try to understand what are the competitive dynamics in an industry and, and where does my business fit in there? Um, but as you'll notice, a lot of the businesses that we have are businesses that have such a strong network effect that it leads to 
almost monopoly-like, duopoly-like, or oligopoly-like characteristics, making them very, uh, have lending them to pricing power uh, and very difficult to disrupt. Understood. And uh, a good one for us to, to go ahead and wrap up here on as our last question. Uh, when, we, when we hit the market crash in March, did you hold on to your positions or did you trim them, buy back? What, what, was, your, what was your strategy at that time? So um, I will say that we were excited. Um, and, and I feel a little bit bad in saying that because not excited because of what, of course, was going on in the world. And, and so I want to be sensitive to that because, of course, that affects our lives. Um, but if you're only isolating the single point of prices, I was like, thank goodness, finally, we're starting to see prices that I can feel good about. But what was interesting is, you know, I think the market did a pretty good job of sorting out opportunity versus danger. Where you really saw the market collapse the most tended to be businesses that were very capital intensive. Therefore, they were very leveraged. And all that leverage and capital intensity in a, at a time when revenues could drop. I mean, I remember thinking in my mind, I have never before needed to try to analyze a business and think, how long can it last on zero revenue? <laughs> and so, but you needed to start to think in those terms. And so those businesses, obviously, that had the cash flow, the spigot turned off, particularly if they're leveraged, they got decimated. The airlines, the, the, uh, the hotels. But if I were to be in those industries, then I'd say, well, if I'm going to participate at all, I want to know, I want to feel confident that the capital is, needs are light so that they can scale back if they need to on, on variable costs and survive. And so a business like Booking, which is very capital light, or a business like Amadeus, which is over the, uh, you know, they, they connect all of the, the booking, the booking of the, the volumes of, of uh, airline, each plane that takes off, they're connecting those tickets to the actual airlines um, and getting a volume, a percentage on all the volume, clipping a coupon on, on all that airfare. Again, another capital light business. And so we did, during that time, we bought into... Um, Amadeus, um, we did buy some into booking, some of these things that were getting hammered. But we weren't buying into cruise lines because we recognized if the market, you know, if this goes on a lot longer than we think, then these businesses, they're going to need to raise tremendous amounts of capital. And the stockholder may end up becoming, uh, or excuse me, the bondholders may end up becoming the stockholders and squeeze you out. So if I was interested in that at all, it would maybe be looking at the bonds and do the bonds trade like an equity. But um, but overall, uh, you know, we were excited on anything. We were to answer the question quickly. It's yes, we were buying things, but it's not like we had tons of cash on hand. We just would then look at okay, if the spreads are moving, which businesses are is the spread getting a lot higher on, and we're still confident that it can survive blow up risk, avoid you know blow up risk. And then we would put more there, like Nike would be a good example, where it got decimated, but then it came back with a vengeance. Um, and then we actually trimmed our business, our, our holding in Disney, and then ended up just exiting it um, when there was more of a rebound. But we were concerned because, you know, they're disrupting their business through the streaming side, which is they needed to do, and it's been positive. 
And we felt confident that they would have pricing power and the flywheel effect within the company. Um, you know, you look at their price, their ticket prices, and they raised, they went up for like 40 years at seven and a half percent, you know, far in excess of inflation. So there's real pricing power there. But we were worried, man, there's, they just swallowed Fox. There's all these, this debt on the company. They have so many assets tied up in the parks and the cruise ships and everything else. And we just felt like, you know, if this goes on a lot longer, this could become potentially dangerous. You would think that they should be able to raise debt no matter what. Um, but it would, as you're, the more you're incurring all these losses, the, lo the longer it's going to, you're going to, it's going to take longer to catch up. And so we just felt in that case to, to get rid of it. So there was one we sold, um, but we did it more after the rebound, um, which we were grateful that that one came <laughs> to allow us to, to exit. Definitely. Well, thank you for that answer. And thank you for taking the time to come out here and do this live stream with us. I know it's always appreciated by our audience to have an investor with such a level of success as yourself. And it's been an absolute pleasure to have the presentation and jump into these questions here with our audience. So thank you for coming out and joining us today. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's, it's definitely been my pleasure. Absolutely. And for those of you out in the audience, uh, if you missed any part of the presentation or you want to look back on things, uh, there will be a full recording uh, made available here on our YouTube channel as well as on GuruFocus.com. Uh, we do have uh, some additional links uh, out there to uh, YCG's channel as well. Um, if you want to go check that out, you definitely can. Um, I know they would appreciate it as well. And uh, if you like the, uh, the video today, make sure to, to give it a like and subscribe and turn on notifications if you want to see future content from us. Uh, as always, we, we thank you for joining us and we hope everybody out there can stay safe and stay healthy moving into the future. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Value Investing Live. If you haven't joined one of our live streams before, check us out on YouTube and register for the events on GuruFocus.com. If it's your first time hearing of us, click the link in the bio for a free 7-day trial of Guru Focus where you can test out all of our great tools and features. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.